I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Good afternoon, all, and a very special welcome to the other hand for my guest today, Mr. Peter Van Dessel, for the second time. Peter is an old friend of mine. We go back many, many years, far far more than we care to remember. Uh, A long time ago, we worked together, and we've been friends ever since. Peter is an expatriate Irishman in the United States, living in New England, and runs a very successful asset management hedge fund business and has a young family out there and has all sorts of interesting perspectives on both financial markets and indeed life in the United States. Peter and I want to do a couple of things today. The conversation will, as always, go off in unintended and unanticipated directions. But where we're going to start is with an interview that the well-known economist Jeffrey Sachs gave to the Financial Times Earlier this week, the journalist Martin Sanbu, the economist Martin Sanbu, interviewed Professor Sachs across a whole range of issues, um, starting with the environment, but branching out into the state of the world, and in particular, the state of the United States. The environment bit of the conversation I'm going to leave to one side for now, because I hope that we have time, Peter and I, to discuss some of the environmental stuff that Sachs raised in a, in a more general context. But there were several things in that interview, and I would thoroughly recommend any, anybody read it, because one particular point that he made, or opinion that Jeffrey Sachs expressed, was about the United States and the way that it is run, the way in which the United States is governed. And I might be paraphrasing slightly, 
But Sachs said something like, the United States, with the exception of the 30 years that followed the New Deal, so really from the early mid-1930s to the uh, early mid-1960s are the exceptional years. Apart from those, Sachs asserted, the United States has been run by an elite essentially to keep their taxes down. A very simple goal, governance objective of the elite of the United States. Do you think that's a fair characterization of the America that you know, Pete? It's such a vast country. It's got such a, an incredible history, Chris, that, again, I, I think I said this a few times the last, uh, last time we spoke, which is generalizations are tough to address. Maybe if I come at it this way. So you identify 30 years where there was a, an exceptional time, and I would agree. And I'll bring it back to two direct points with respect to that time frame. The New Deal, FDR, what he did, he, he did a number of things. He reset gold and therefore gave himself the fiscal attitude to, to take on spending. He increased taxes. He did a number of things that created for the first time here, really, a social safety net. It wasn't popular amongst the elite, as you refer to, not at all. It's still, it's still is a, believe it or not, a, a very emotive point at certain circles. And with that, he regenerated the economy to a degree, certainly up to 1937 was a, a bit of a swoon then. And then we had the Second World War. So was FDR, was he ever given sort of credit for regenerating and getting this country out of the Depression? Never really was. The Second World War really was, was, was accredited with giving this country just the, the oomph and the, and, and, the, and the crawl out of that, that awful time. But then there's another president that is seldom really referred to with respect to, to economic policy, and that's Eisenhower. And Eisenhower was a very interesting fellow. Within his first term, Eisenhower walked into quite a big recession. And Reisenhower did a funny thing. In the middle of that recession, he raised rates um, in this country. And at one stage, the highest marginal tax rate at that time in that recessionary period was 85%. So back to your point about a 30-year time frame. So we had a Republican president raising rates to balance the books, raised it at the marginal end to 85%. And then we have an, a, another president, a Democratic president, FDR, changing, we'd say, the, the financial structure of the country in an effort to bringing a social safety net. So that those 30 years, you're, you're right, was, were, were truly exceptional. And the country came together in a, in, in, a, in a very deep way and coalesced around these figureheads. And it was a very, you know, it was, it was a country that was at war for, for, for a bit of it, but it was also at war with the, with the ravages of the recession at the time in the 1930s. And people came together. So now, if I come to today, Chris, if I could just move to today, there's been there's been conflict. This country's been far, fighting foreign escapades for quite some time, but it hasn't really been in a recession for some time. I see myself a real divide here now developing. The country is not in a harmonious state at all. And the governance structure of the country, from what I can see and from what many people can see, most listeners here too, the governance structure seems to be breaking down. Is the, is the 1930s the exceptional period? Is, is now an exceptional period. I don't know. They're all just different periods. And I think they're just this country seems to move in, in shifts and changes. Yeah. And I, I wonder about just how exceptional our current times are. And this is not a comment just about the United States. It's also about the country I live in at the moment, the UK. But Sachs, as I mentioned, has a, has a very particular perspective on this. And I'll actually read out the quote from the article. It's about the role of money in democratic politics, which, of course, goes back for as long as there has been democracy. And I quote, America is and always has been, except for roughly the 30 years from the New Deal to the Great Society. The Great Society was, was of course, Lyndon Johnson. A plutocratic society run for and by 
the rich. That's a very strong statement, which kind of says that the divide that you're hinting at there that we observe in the daily headlines is less exceptional than perhaps we think it is. I look at the UK at the moment and people talk about all sorts of divides here. I don't want to go off on one about my my particular weird historical perspective on the way the UK is run. But people think about the divide in the UK between rich and poor, between educated and uneducated, old and young, and the various ways in which these divides are described. I look back to through, throughout history to going back to medieval times, the way in which the UK essentially used to be a feudal system. You know, there were the, there's the landed aristocracy, the barons, the earls, the powerful people with titles is how we have always done it in the UK and the rest. And everybody knew their place. And the way in which you, you were an aristocratic, landowning, wealthy, powerful person was generally speaking, you inherited the money. And we're going to, and I want to talk about inheritance and its role in modern society in a moment. The other way, of course, that you did it was that you did a favor for the king or queen, usually in battle, and got awarded some lands that either because the person that used to own them was dead or that they were farmed by serfs, it didn't really matter. We, of course, assume that that feudalism that everybody knowing their place, incredibly class-ridden, rigidly class-ridden society has all changed in the modern era. And sometimes I wonder actually just how much it has changed. And I'll give you a little story about that. Cardiff, a city that I grew up in, that I know very well in, in many different ways, used to be owned by a Scottish earl, believe it or not. The Welsh capital city essentially in the 19th century was owned by somebody called the Marquis of Butte. Now, there, there used to be a formula, this bear with me because this is a bit long-winded but it it is relevant I think I hope earlier this year sadly a an ex-Formula One racing driver called Johnny Dumfries died same age as me he's born in 1958 tragically died of cancer I think and he was the eighth Earl of Butte Marquis of Butte if you read the actual list of titles that over the centuries this family has acquired, it would take about as long as this podcast. They are Earl this, Baron that, and all the rest of it. Now, he rechristened himself Johnny Dumfries because he didn't want to be known as the eighth Marquis of Butte. But the Butte family in the 19th century were the Marquis of Butte in the 19th century was the Bill Gates of his day, in the sense that he was probably the richest man in the world. And certainly, we think from the data that we have, one of, if not the highest earning people. In the 19th century, the Marquis of Butte at an income of £300,000 a year from his estates. Mm. Now, you know what inflation is, Pete. You know what £300,000 a year was worth in the 19th century. It must have meant that he was a multi-multi-billionaire person in the 19th century, on the style today of Jeff Bezos and co. And the, the source of the wealth is always very interesting because often it was inherited. Sometimes it was by marriage because a lot of some of these guys got their wealth through marrying rich women who brought with them their father's money, quite frankly, in that patriarchal society, because there was no male inheritor of the estate. And the Buttes found in the 19th century that they owned, believe it or not, most of the South Wales coal fields, which weren't worth very much when they were first acquired. But when the Industrial Revolution came along, and coal that was uh, useful for steel and other processes that needed steam production. South Wales coal used to be called steam coal. They discovered the whole world wanted the, the, the coal from the South Wales coal fields, but they couldn't get it to them. So they dug canals to Cardiff, and Cardiff became the busiest port in the world for the export of coal and the import and export of other, other materials. 
So there was a lot of serendipity, a lot of accidents to this wealth, but it was all about a Scottish aristocratic family owning these vast sources of wealth. And it wasn't just South Wales that this aristocratic family owned, it was half of Scotland as well. So an extraordinary story about inequality, winner takes all, power, money coming from the source of the day. And in those days, it was the the powerful source of power, money and wealth was, of course, heavy industry. That's all changed today in terms of the sources of wealth. The way in which you become rich these days is that you set up a unicorn in Silicon Valley and you become Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or anybody else like that. And I wonder just how much has changed because the way in which society was organized right up until the 19th century, well into the Industrial Revolution, was still pretty feudal in the UK, which was essentially, if you look at medieval Britain, you'd think that you were looking at an episode of The Sopranos or one of the Godfather movies. These were essentially mafia states, mafia countries, where a brutal elite held sway over the serfs and everybody knew their place. We've painted an awful lot of layers on our civilization today, but I wonder how thick the layers are and really just how much these elites that exist today resemble their medieval counterparts, actually resemble the cast of the Sopranos, and in fact are just a mafia elite behind a veneer of civilization and are still ruling us with an iron fist. I don't want to sound like some raging lefty because I most definitely am not. But the extent to which modern elites resemble their medieval counterparts, when you think about it, there's still an awful lot of resonance. And these families in the UK still own an awful lot of the UK. Wealth is still incredibly unequal. And I know it is true in the United States. But the South Wales coalfield owning counterparts in the modern era are just the tech barons and the people that run Wall Street. You can count them on the fingers of one hand. There aren't very many of them. And the power that they exercise, and this is Sack's point about money, is that it doesn't actually matter where your money comes from, whether it's old heavy industry or modern software. It all looks the same, doesn't it? And we are, we're the idiots in the room because we think that we're living in these meritocratic, democratic societies that in fact are run as feudal systems just as much as they were except with the thin veneer of civilization. Am I exaggerating? No. Wow, that's a big answer. <laughs> yeah. <And> it, <laughs> I didn't expect that. No, you're not. And, and, and the thing that's happening here that I can see, and it's, it's palpable, you can feel it, is people, people are seeing it more and more. Now, the evidence of that, you can see within what we've seen over the last five to six years, there's a social divide developing. It's, uh, it's political, it's socioeconomic, it's, it's social in, its, in, in scope, but it's all... I think, coming from a place of deep distrust. I'm very lucky to have got to know a man who was involved in the Gorbachev administration in Russia. This wonderful man is, is, a, is a friend of the families, and he would talk at length sometimes. And Russians have a very wry humor, and it's a, it comes from a stoicism. It's a sort of, a, an, in, in certain ways, a, a, a cynicism of just the dynamic that you're talking about. I'm more or less a, an arms in the air, what can we do? We can just create humor and that's how we'll deal with it. But what what this man would say, too, is that he can see the very same evidence today of what he saw at the end of the Soviet Union, the demise that took place throughout the 1980s. What that evidence is to him is this cynicism, this regardless of what's said, regardless of what's done, this the, the retort is they would say that, wouldn't they? And once yes. you're there, once you're there, Chris, as a society, Something's something's coming, a change is coming, because you can't. 
there's no, there's no response to that. You can't address that. Well, I wonder about that because my point about things are essentially the same. We run our societies the same way that we did hundreds of years ago, obviously with some improvements, not least material improvement. We, the serfs, actually live very, very well relative to the Earl of Butte in the 19th century, thanks to technology, thanks to economic growth, thanks to the crumbs on the table that we're allowed. So, you know, we must keep this, must have a perspective on this. But this idea that we are vastly different to how societies were run hundreds of years ago, that it is more meritocratic, that it is more democratic, that things are more equal, is just bogus. And that the way we human beings seem to organize ourselves seems to be unchanging. So your thesis that this is an end of empire or an end of days type feel that your Russian friend has on that analysis is actually quite wrong. Because what I'm asserting is that this is the way all things have always been. We always put lipstick on the pig, but the pig stays. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think mm. they're one of the same. It's just you're talking, you're, you're, you're suggesting that I'm saying end of empire. Not necessarily. I'm saying a change is coming. So very, that's very my, that's my point, is that is, is the story that I've painted, the very lurid, somewhat exaggerated story that I painted, is that nothing ever does seem to change other than the different color paint or lipstick that we put on this quite barbaric system that we have. And, and it, Britain, unlike France, never had a revolution against this. Various countries over the years, Russia included, have tried to revolt. But even when they do, Pete, it, it, we just seem to replace one bunch of gangsters with another. And it's, nothing it, ever really changes. Yeah, it's, I, I think to, to reconcile our different perspectives, you, I think it's time frames. I think, you're, I think this country did change for 30 years. I think it fundamentally changed for 30 years and then reasserted that underlying dynamic again. Because that underlying, underlying dynamic actually is written in the constitution of this country. Like if you go back to the constitution, the way it was, was conceived here, you had largely landowners writing a set of aspirations to give votes, one person, one vote to the, to the, to the masses. That's not a very logical thing to do if you're, if you're mindful about the assets that you own yourself, because why would they not vote to this commode you of those assets? Of course they would. So then they construct different means to mitigate that. So we have the electoral college system and so on and so forth, two-party system as well. So this country, we started about the US, has been fighting this dynamic for a very long time. As you said, that's why the 1930s through to the 1960s were such an exceptional time. I think we are perhaps moving into a time that again will be exceptional. I do think... I know we have Donald Trump and we have the Republican Party, you know, as a very big presence. But I think there's an underlying change happening here politically that's far more significant than that. And that is a more socially minded electorate of younger people coming through. We call them the millennial generation that are looking for something different, Chris, whether it be the environment, whether it be the, the wealth divide, whether it be the aspirations to talk about meritocracy, the aspirations of young people. The bare fact that they can't afford housing, Chris, that's a huge issue here, as it is. Well, in the it, as you know, it's a huge issue on this side of the Atlantic in both Britain and in Ireland and indeed in other countries as well. And yeah. I, I get that sense of wanting a different kind of life from my own children and uh, the way in which they think about the world. I, I was telling Eamon Dunphy in his podcast the other day that I 
found it hilarious. To, I was out for a drink with my son with a group of his university friends the other day. Their favourite term of abuse at the moment is to call somebody a Tory. The thing that strikes me, and the reason why I paint that, that somewhat exaggerated picture that I did earlier on, is that we clearly live in a winner-takes-all society, a society that you and I know is rigged in so many ways in favour of such a, a, a small elite of people, and that they seem to have a lock on it. Now, you talk and I talk just there about how the young do seem to want something different for very obvious reasons like housing and indeed many others, the environment, equality and other very, very important and salient issues. But the fact is, I started that statement with the elites have a lock and they do. And on this side of the Atlantic, Pete, the way in which your elite seems to have a lock or one aspect of your elite seems to have a lock on the system is that we're all pretty convinced over here that not only is Donald Trump running for the next election, but he's going to win. And that's not going to usher in this new social society that you describe, is it? I have one very strong track record. I am useless at forecasting American elections. I really am. I have no idea if he'll win or not. I'd be surprised. I don't think I don't think 2022 will do will go well for the for the for the Democrats in the House or the Senate, I, I just don't. It seems to be that seems to be written in stone. But as far as Donald Trump getting a another term, I think that might be something that won't happen. But we'll see. Um, the well, I certainly but hope it, that's right. With respect to if it does or if it doesn't happen, the fact is, and it's a sad in certain ways, but it's a, 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 a it's a reality of life that Donald Trump's voting base. Are slowly passing away, and a bit it's like, a, a bit like Boris Johnson's actually, which is why I was amused to hear my young friends use the word Tory, another word for the Conservative Party, as a, as a term of abuse. That speaks to the same kind of electoral forces that are going on here in the UK. Is that, uh, that Boris Johnson's electoral base is t- not all, not one hundred percent, but typically older. Yeah. And as we oldies shuffle off this mortal coil, our Tory voting instincts we think might be going with with just aging. That's a very interesting one as well. A, a, a specific issue about whether or not the elites have a lock on this, and, and we will see. I mean, I have no idea what the next American election is. All I know is that the people that I seem to speak to are petrified that Trump is on the way back and that it's going to be horrible and that he's going to learn the lessons of his first presidency. And on day one, we're going to get a new head of the FBI. We're going to get a new uh, head of the Department of Justice. We're going to get a new attorney general. We're going to get people in all of the key places, including the Supreme Court, that will make sure that Trumpism runs rife and all the way through to maybe even constitutional amendments a la Putin, a la Xi Jinping, that make him president for life. That's That's an appalling vista, which we hope that the system of checks and balances in the US Constitution heads off. Less luridly, less fantastically perhaps, I know that you're a fan of the Harvard philosopher Michael Sandel, who uh, one of his most recent books was called The Myth of Meritocracy. And that speaks to something that I mentioned earlier on, is that we've all fallen for this myth, that because we've gotten a few crumbs off the elite's table, people like us, people who have never inherited a penny in our lives through through our own efforts and good fortune, have managed to, to achieve something in, in life. And that, in fact, that what we, according to Sandel, are victims of is a myth, that meritocracy, which we think that we have benefited from, exists by exception rather than the rule. I know you've read the book. I think you're a fan. Do you agree? I, I think Sandel is a, 
you know, it's a fantastic book. I, I, I've read my, much of his work and I think he's a wonderful thinker and a, a, just he, he's the best of humanity um, in so many ways. In that book, yes, I do. There's a there's another book, if I may just refer to in this, because it, it talks to the meritocracy thing. It's a it's 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 called Excellent Sheep, the Miseducation of the American Elite. It's a it's a book that was talks about why I think the underlying dynamics as to what Sindel talks about with, with respect to meritocracy and how people feel entitled to what they have here. And it comes through the education system, Chris. So to get to my point, kids here, and we see it in our own school system here locally, which is quite a good school system, but my, is it intense. Kids are going into uh, elementary school and at the age of four or five, and in certain families and certain dynamics are, are sort of trapped they're on a they're on a path. Either they're going to follow their parents' footsteps and go to a certain college, or they're going to go to a certain career or whatever, and they're trapped. And and these kids work towards that end. Now, in certain communities, not, but in a lot of communities, that is the case. So kids spend what 12, 13 years in this really intense former hot house, hot house, hmm. and they get certain they get a certain grade, grade point average, and then they go into another hot house, hot house, which is the which is the college system, which is where they start to grow up. Actually, they they leave home here, they and and they have this. Some go go to parties, but they grow up in this over four years. Many of them actually meet their spouse in this in this period. Then they settle down. Then many from there on in will go into work for a couple of years, and then they'll go back to and they'll do a post grad degree, business school, or whatever. And it's it's an existence that is really intense, Chris. It's really bad. And, and it's quite it. verified. Sachs, in that interview um, in the FT that I spoke about earlier on, spoke that about one of the key divides, if not the key divide in the United States, are between people that are university educated and those that are not. And that that gap, I sensed from his remarks, is growing ever wider. And what you're speaking to there, I think, is, is evidence that that's the case. Because in order to become university educated in that meaningful way, as at least those elites would define, it's not just about getting a bachelor's degree, an ordinary BA or BSc. It's about graduate school and it's about then joining one of the elite Wall Street investment banks or law firms. The hoops that you have to jump through in order to be able to A, get into these schools. And we've seen the way in which some of those elites buy those entry tickets to those elite universities. Some people have gone to jail for this recently. And the various ways in which these golden tickets are obtained are, are, are quite quite extraordinary. You, you, you have to speak several foreign languages, pay, play several orchestral instruments to symphony orchestra standards, have saved one or two third world countries from destitution before they'll even look at you. Such, such are the entry requirements into the elite. And this, of course, is present in many societies. This is a way of social stratification, of getting, of, of enabling give people to achieve money, wealth, power, and status. And throughout, again, I go back to medieval times, it was the same, but in a different way. The tickets were given out under different criteria. It was usually how many people you'd managed to kill on the battlefield or and or who you'd managed to marry or who you'd been born to. But the story is essentially the same about a small elite locking everything up for themselves. We just happen to do it in a slightly different way that we regard to be, we consider mistakenly in my view to be more civilized because I think what we do to those children when they are forced through that sausage machine, the ones that come out at the end very successfully, well-adjusted and happy, I think are an absolute tiny minority 
in the tail of the distribution. It's a bit like the way premiership football clubs in the UK treat children in terms of their entry requirements. They take them in at seven, eight, nine years old, and most of them are spat out at 16 years of age, not having made it, and have enormous. some of them have enormous mental health and other problems associated with not quite making it. And even the ones that do. I used to tease, because in Ireland, we have similar sausage machines. We have the elite schools that you know from South County Dublin and elsewhere, the sausage machines that, that they are. And I used to tease, when I lived in Dublin, I used to tease all my friends that are obsessed with A, getting their kids into these schools, and B, then making sure that they did the right course at university and then got into the right law firm or other professional occupation or other, you know, usually financial services or the law or, or less so medicine and accountancy. And I would tease my middle-aged friends obsessing about this, that they were essentially sending their children down the same path that they went down. Why were they doing this? Because my middle-aged friends were all as miserable as sin, all desperately unhappy. Why did they want their children to be as unhappy as they were? You can imagine how popular I made myself yeah. in, the pubs of, in the pubs of Dorky with, with, that, with that narrative. So it is a peculiar thing, isn't it? That we have, we, it, it, um, it is, Chris. It is, Chris. It's, it's, a, it's, it's not only peculiar... But I think it's, as in this William Dershowitz books, The, the Excellent Sheep, is as also poisoning poison the early adulthood of, 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 many, of many young people. Um, and in that expose that he talks about, and also Sandel talks about it too, what it creates is it creates the pull up the drawbridge type thing. Which Absolutely. Is, That's the, the, again, I go back to my phrase, the elites uh, putting a lock on everything, winner takes all. Uh, they're they're the, the medieval barons and we're the idiot serfs. And also defining what is merit. Or the, the, again, back to Sandel's work, you, you know, is, is, is someone's academic record. Perhaps they were blessed with a certain faculties. Are those faculties to be rarefied above, of, for example, that of a, a dancer or, a, um, or, a, or a, you know, a, an actor or whatever? We've, we've, we've chosen... We've cho- chosen certain faculties and we've rarefied and we've we've dispensed of, we'll say, other, we'll say, skills, or we certainly price them differently. And I think that's also something that's creating a, a, a great anger, too. Did you ever read with your children the Harry Potter books? I have not, believe okay. it or not. If you had um, read the books or seen any of the movies, you would know that I think uh, I'm not a huge fan of the books. I don't think they were that well written, but I have to recognize that J.K. Rowling is is an incredibly successful author. And I probably am speaking enviously there. Her greatest creation, actually, was something called the sorting hat. Now, the way in which the kids in Hogwarts school, the school that Harry Potter attended, was sorted into their various houses and which house you went into determined your destiny, what type of being, what type of person, what type of wizard you are going to become, whether you were going to be good or evil. The sorting hat was the mechanism that determined which child went where. And I thought that was a great metaphor for for what we're talking about, actually, because all we're talking about, whether it's feudalism or whether you work in a hedge fund or whether you work in Silicon Valley or the top law firms in in, in Wall Street or the city, whatever it is that you've been sorted with, whatever tickets you may or may not have been given. It's all about a sorting hat, isn't it? And all we have are these mechanisms for dividing up the spoils and whether or not the spoils are divided equally in a meritocratic sort of way or in a fair way or an unfair way. The sorting hat in Harry Potter's world was a pretty random affair. I think that it's it's equally random in, in real life in the sense that it's still 
who you're born to mostly, both in terms of your material inheritance and your genetic inheritance. And after that, it's all pretty much sorted out. The idea that through um, hard work, you can get anything in life is the exception rather than the rule. That's the myth of meritocracy, because those people that were born were not nobly born with either wealth or genetic inheritance that somehow or other do manage to make it to the top of whatever particular pile they are seeking to be on top of. The one common factor that they all have is they all think they've achieved it through hard work. Yes. And that, and that luck and serendipity has got nothing to do with it. And, it, you, and those, you and I have both experienced lots of people at the top of various piles, particularly financial ones, who just got there because they were at the right place at the right time and got lucky. Absolutely. And you and Absolutely. I have benefited. You and I have benefited for an awful lot of luck as well. It has to be said. Completely. Um, I think you'd agree with that. It's so, so. There's a lot going on there, Pete, and and I I don't know what conclusions one can draw from that, other than to say that I think that societies on both sides of the Atlantic are in a dangerous place, mostly because of that myth of meritocracy. It's just been carried on too far. Things have gone too far. The elites have been stupid, in my view, in that they've not shared enough crumbs over the table. I'm reminded of the apartheid era in South Africa. I knew a lot of anti-apartheid activists back in the day, people who'd been in jail for a very long time. They, what they spoke of was something they knew about what they were speaking. And they used to say to me, the key mistake that the Afrikaners, the implementers of apartheid, made in terms of not in terms of sowing the seeds of its own destruction is that they didn't create a middle class amongst the people that they were trying to do down that if they just done a little bit more to create a middle class amongst the non-white community they could have achieved their apartheid aims at least for longer than they actually did but because they just didn't give anything to them nothing at all and just did them down all the time they sowed the seeds of their own relatively quick, thankfully, destruction. And similarly, I think the elites, by taking everything now and putting themselves on top of rockets to go up into space, they're enabling, for example, Xi Jinping and Putin to laugh at us. I think that the Russians and the Chinese are able to turn to their own people and say, moral high ground, the West, forget about it. Just look at the nonsense that they come up with. Look at what they're doing to their economies, financial crisis, etc., Look at what they're doing in terms of inequality. Look at what their democratic systems result in. Their their democracies, their much lauded meritocratic democracies, give us um, old Etonian Oxford-educated elites like Boris Johnson and co. in the UK and Donald Trump in the United States. And they think they have a better system. I do think we're at a dangerous point. And notwithstanding all my earlier remarks about this thing just seems to hang around forever in one shape or form. I do think that there is a distinct possibility that the wheels could come off in some horrible and very unpredictable way. I hope not. I sincerely hope not. I hope we can cure a lot of these problems peacefully without crisis. But we have a very crisis prone system, it seems clear to me, not least economically and financially. And I would not be at all surprised in whatever time is left to me on this mortal coil that we have a, you know, more crisis. I don't know what you think. Just if I may say, you just—I think you—you you, you speak very eloquently, Chris. And there's a lot of there's a lot of thread out there. Um, I think there's a lot of things that need to be addressed, and I think we need a lot of we need leadership, frankly, and we need thoughtful leadership. I do. You, you talk about billionaires 
putting themselves into rockets and going up into space. I'm always struck by that because I remember as a really small kid looking at the um, the lunar landing and the, the incredible expedition that happened in the late 1960s. In other words, we were doing this stuff how many years ago? 50 years ago. And yet here we are sending these guys up into, you know, up but into back the, then over. we we selected people to go into space that were capable of withstanding incredible G forces that yeah. were MIT scientists yeah. who had graduated with degrees in aeronautical engineering that were test pilots that could do the most extraordinary things with airplanes that were skimming, you know, the, surf, the, the, the outer limits of the atmosphere. Tom Wolfe wrote the book, The Right Stuff. These yeah. were incredibly able, talented and qualified people. Now, the only qualification that you need to go into space is a large bag balance. Isn't that exactly. extraordinary? Isn't that an extraordinary it, difference? It is. And I, I think it's a it's a I think it's an analogy for I, I think for the last fifty years. I don't think for all the technological developments that we've that we've created, and they are they are some of them is just remarkable. But really as far as ambition is concerned for humanity overall, I think we've we've left that behind. You know, if you think about that program, what that stood for back in the 60s, and I, now I'm showing my age, but I was a very small kid at the time. There was optimism, there was ambition, there was, you know, what could we not achieve? And I feel these days, and this is a sad note, but I feel these days we are caught up in other stuff. I don't know what it is, but it's it's it, it, it lacks for me, for all the technological advance that we seem to have, there seems to be a terrible lack of ambition and a, a, and a, a mindset that, is more concerned about threat than than optimism, and that that's 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 not, that's disappointing. Is there any way we because we, we have run way over my normal time limit for these things, but it's my podcast, so I can spend as much time <laughs> as, as I like on it. Apologies to my audience. Could we end? Can we end on an optimistic note? What what is it about this, the world at the moment in all of that stuff that we've just talked about that you can discern some glimmers? Because it, it, it isn't all bleak. It isn't, we do not live in a dystopian world. We're talking about threats here. Is there a path out of this? I think there's a wonderful opportunity to look at the way we consume. I think there is something to this global weirding, we call it. I think Carbon is a big issue. I think it's been hijacked by certain interested forces, but but I think carbon and looking at different forms and types of energy generation, that's exciting. You call this mortal coil, but it's our really the earth, it's it's our one place. It's our where we are and we have to look yeah. after it. And I think I think focusing on that, focusing on what we need to do and not getting caught up with what the Chinese, what the US, what Europe are doing and working together. That sounds very hopeful and maybe even naive, but I think we have to get there. And COP26, I don't know if it represents, it doesn't re represent the broad community of humanity and it should, um, but certainly the, the, you know, the like of Jeffrey Sachs talking as he does, having that brave conversation with people, I think that in itself is hopeful. I think a man of his ilk talking like that. I hope people do read it. I think it was a wonderful interview. It was, it was very brave for a, a US man to be coming out with that stuff. It was very brave. That's That gives me hope. And I, I, you know, hopefully we'll see some more brave voices that are in these halls of power coming out and calling it as it is, because we need it. We need it. We do. Um, humanity has a habit of muddling through, albeit with the odd crisis. And so we, we keep our fingers crossed. But I think you're right that one definite source of optimism 
is that we start managing this planet better than we do. I'm not encouraged by things like COP26. I'm more encouraged by ground up efforts, to be honest. Uh, a good friend of mine has christened the, the event in Glasgow as um, Glastonbury for conspicuous environmentalists. And, I, and that's a very jaundiced description, but it's one that I have some sympathy with. I am more hopeful that the, the, the ground up developments, which governments have played a role in actually, in terms of the the solar and wind revolution and all those other things do give us grounds for optimism that would lead to not just an environmental benefit, but also an economic revolution because the the types of new technologies and the new sources of growth, the jobs that will could potentially flow from getting this right. I think the opportunity is massive, as you say. Let's leave it there, Peter. Um, I just want to conclude by saying thank you very much again for your time. We will definitely do this again. We have left a big subject on the table that I wanted to cover today. So we always leave something for next time is, is a good motto. I would like to talk to you more about environmental issues because I know you, you have a lot to say. So I look forward to that conversation. But again, thank you very much for today. Much, much appreciated. It was a great conversation. Thank you, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.